this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. Expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the most common psychological myths I'm regularly asked about. Like, can your dreams predict the future? Do we really only use 10% of our brains? And does subliminal advertising actually work? And how would you know if it did? Let's get on with the show. This episode, I'd say, is slightly different to the ones that we normally do. because It's going to be fast-paced and interesting. (laughs) But, but no, it, we're just going to jump about, I think. We're, we're not just going to do one topic and explore the psychological research within no, that. We're, no. we're, we're going to go all over the place with psychological myths that presumably people ask you. That's right. Things they've read about, things they've seen on the internet, and they're kind of going, oh, I've read this. Is this true? And today we've assembled some of my favourite myths, and we're going to do a little bit of myth-busting and try and set the record straight on these issues. Okie doke. So, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming everything on the internet is true. Yeah, absolutely. But just, it's good to double check these things, right? Yes. Yeah. So, first myth that you'd like to talk about? Uh, I'd like to talk about the Yale Motivational Study, which is one of my favourite things. Never heard of it. What is it? Well, if you read self-help books... Yeah, that's where I haven't... There you go. Yeah. And you will read about the Yale Motivational Study... And it's fantastic. Basically, some researchers went to a group of Yale students who are all graduating. They said, do you know what you want to be in about 20 years' time? Are you focused on a certain outcome? Only 3% did. You track that group for 20 years. It turns out that 3% is earning 97% of the income of the cohort. Wow. In other words... My goodness, focusing in your early 20s, great idea if you want to earn lots of money a few years later. That's impressive. It's very impressive. And I read about it. I thought that's odd because what's called a longitudinal study where you're tracking people, they're a complete pain in the backside to do. 20 years, that's incredible. And so I kind of asked around a little bit and then I found out that a journalist had already dug into this study. Uh, So a guy called Lawrence Tebeck. And he'd already asked around. So he'd asked people at uh, Yale if they'd heard about this. They asked their colleagues. Uh, He went through the Yale yearbooks. He went through, as I'd actually done, all of the academic literature uh, on uh, on goal setting and motivation and so on. And has concluded, quite correctly, the study has never been run. It's a complete myth. But how's it cropped up everywhere? Well, because it looks like one sort of self-help guru just thought, that's a good story. I'll tell that. As they told it at a conference, word spread. It ends up in books. It ends up on the internet. People then end up trying to encourage their offspring uh, to to focus young uh, for the financial rewards they're going to gain later on. And there's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. What it puts into perspective is that as a psychologist, you go into bookstores and there's these self-help sections. And the people in there all want to improve and change their lives in some way. And you open it and you think, but this stuff's not going to help you at all. You know, there's there's exercises in there that might make things worse. There's stories in there that probably aren't true. There's studies in there that have never been conducted because there's no kind of legislation, there's no kind of control over this stuff. But you, but they're, I mean, I was going to say they're very readable. I, I don't read them. Um, but I have noticed if you go into the airport 
in the bookshops there, there's a whole section. Oh, it's huge. They've got their own section just for themselves. Yes, because some of my books are in there, and, and so I shouldn't diss it too much. I mean, So they're brilliant. They're, it's a, thinking you should about absolutely it, go to absolutely. these sections. Particularly towards the end of the alphabet. Yeah, if, yeah, if yeah. They're, if they're Start to, there, work yeah, backwards. Work backwards, that's always my advice. Um, and so and also, if you go into people's homes and you look at their bookshelves, uh, if you see a self-help book, they're, like, they're, they're sort of pack animals of publishing. There's always a whole load of self-help books. There's never just one, which is the clue that maybe the first one wasn't Didn't quite work. as successful. <laughs> and if you ask them about that, they go, oh, no, no, I keep going until I find one uh, that, that works for me, which is fine. But as I say, there, there's no quality control with this. There, there's no, hold on a second, is this based on evidence? So actually what I was doing with Luck Factor and 59 Seconds and so on, it was then going, let's take things where there's some kind of evidence and, and at least we know we're on firmer ground. Okay. So, I mean, when you look at the mechanism for that, which is think of what you want and then you earn more money, yeah. there isn't quite, there isn't a logical sort of No, it was about allegedly connection. focusing the power of focusing and it, it turns out that's not a very good idea uh, at all. What you're, I think, alluding to a little bit there is about the power of positive thinking, which is also another myth. And so this, this, you get lots of, you know, just think positively, just think positively. In fact, what you could do is visualise you in, in the perfect uh, relationship, job, career, house in 10 years' time. That's a very, very common visualisation technique you'll see in these books. What is fascinating is when psychologists have looked at that as a visualisation technique, it's not that it makes no difference, it actively harms you. What? Why? Well, because what's happening, there's a bit of debate about what the why, but what's happening, we think, is the brain is going, the mind is going, all right, I've somehow achieved that. I've done it because I can visualise it so well. And so what happens is that when there's the first hurdle, people kind of give up. So visualisation is a very powerful tool, and this is kind of called endpoint visualisation. You visualise yourself, if you want to be a good student, opening the envelope and getting the A grade. Yep. Terrible idea. That's oh. endpoint visualisation. Do not do it. I beg of you, do okay. not do it. Uh, okay, too late. We- <laughs> it's morning. <laughs> you spend the entire morning visualising. I, uh, I visualise me winning Wimbledon tennis tournament. Terrible. Oh, do is, not is do that. Is that why I'm never going that to win? That is the sole reason oh. why you've never been in the final. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so there's all this stuff, and, and it's been done with exam success, been done with careers, done with dating, where you visualise your, your dream date, and it's far, far less likely you end up meeting that person. Uh, with exam success, you actually get lower grades. Uh, with uh, career success, you're less likely to end up in the job you want. It's, but, but why? Why? Why is it because, better than? Why is it worse than not doing it at all? Because what you're not seeing are the hurdles that are going to come along. So any of those things, there's going to be stuff that stands in your way. And if you've visualised yourself in that perfect scenario, as soon as that hurdle comes, you go, "Oh my goodness, I can't be bothered. I wasn't ready for that." So endpoint visualisation bad. What's much better is what's called process visualisation. You visualise yourself doing the things that you need to do to achieve that goal. As a student, visualise yourself going to the library, revising. Um, if you want to get to the Wimbledon final, you visualise yourself playing tennis and, and, and working hard and training and all those sorts of things. And that includes visualising what you're going to do when you get those setbacks, when you lose the match. Um, I mean, I'd imagine that, you know, as a tennis professional, yep, yep. Um, you know, you, you would... How many professional Peak matches athlete. have you had now? I mean, almost some. Almost some, exactly. 
Uh, and and on those matches, if things weren't to go well, you visualise how you're going to respond and how you're going to bounce back and so on. That's that, that's process visualisation. Big thing in sports psychology. So that works. Endpoint doesn't. The lay public don't know the difference. They read these books saying, oh, go for endpoint stuff, and they're actively holding themselves back. What about the nighttime version of, of that visualisation? Can our dreams predict the future? And we are doing a full episode on dreams. We're going we're gonna to talk about dreams later. I'm fascinated by dreams. Do you have very vivid dreams? I have almost no dreams. No. It's really sad. That's not true. It's Well, I, I don't remember them, I guess. Yes. That's, that's the thing. Well, we could do a little dream diary, which is where you write down your dreams and then you could bring them in and I could interpret them. I had to do a dream diary for a program, and they—I uh, told them what my dreams were, and they were so boring that they—they uh, <laughs> cancelled the whole program. They were like, right, because they went, "There's nothing, you know, you can't have a bad dream yes. diary." And I was like, yes. "Well, my dreams were either in meetings at work yes. or commuting to work." Well, we're going to get into this in another episode, but, yeah, but yeah, actually, exactly. I think you might just be very honest. Most dreams are really dull. I was in a um, dream centre where they put electrodes in my head and then woke me up. I had to report my dreams. Exactly what you're saying. It was like invoice came in, paid it. <laughs> And everyone else is going on about, you know. Unicorns. The, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I just I thought, oh, my goodness. Most importantly, can they predict the future? Um, no. Well, it depends what you mean by that. Certainly people have the experience that they dreamt something, the next day it happened, and it's a remarkable coincidence. So if you dreamt that you paid the invoice and the next day you paid, <laughs> paid an invoice, invoice. The chances. Whoa! No, you might dream about... Oh, I don't know, there being a, a train crash or something like that. And the next day you turn on the news and, my goodness, unfortunately, uh, your dream has predicted the future. It's really easy to imagine the impact that it would have on people. So, but here's the thing. So imagine you're dreaming for like, uh, what did I write down here? 60 years. I've done some calculations. 60 years. And you have one dream a night you remember. That turns out to be 22,000 dreams. And if you randomly go, all right, we're going to make one of them the, the, the train dream, and then randomly assign in those 60 years a train crash, the chances of those two corresponding 22,000 to one. So it's not surprising that you think, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. I've only ever had one train crash dream. That's only ever been on the news once. What's the chance? Incredible. But then you get to the law of large numbers. 67 million people in the UK alone. And when you factor that in, within each generation, there should be about 3,000 of those experiences. And then you go, but most dreams, actually, it's not you don't just dream about one train crash, you dream about lots of negative events. And by the way, there's not just one terrible event on the news, often there's quite a lot of terrible events on the news, and it all starts to multiply up. So when you do the maths on it, you realise why people have these rather strange experiences. To them, it's incredible. But when you look at the country as a whole, it's not surprising. But what if you get one person who has that happening multiple times? Well, then you get into, is that person remembering a lot of dreams? How um, flexible are they about what they dreamt versus what's happening the next day? And there's been people that have researched this. A good friend of mine, Stan Krippner, is a parapsychologist. Stan has possibly the coolest experiment in the whole of psychology. How cool? Very cool. Ice cool. Yeah. Uh, so 1960s, The Grateful Dead... Mm. Big band, uh, I believe, into psychedelics and other things in San Francisco. Stan goes to a party 
uh, it's quite an elderly man now, but in the 60s he was doing stuff on dream um, research, goes to a party, bumps into the lead guitarist, Grateful Dead. He's into dreaming as well, and he says to Stan, why don't we do an experiment live in a Grateful Dead concert? Oh, yes. You and see, that's... you know, if you're doing... Yeah, some, some branches of science get all the cool stuff. Yes, that would be quite exciting. Uh, and so, how did it go? I've replicated it, but with the Brotherhood of Man. No, <laughs> um, I haven't. Uh, so, proclaimers, uh, you could get the proclaimers. To I do could it. do actually. Yes, that's that's a very good idea. Um, so uh, anyway, so so what they do is in the Grateful Dead concert, where there's lots of people, there are thousands of people in the audience. Uh, they project these huge pictures onto the back of the stage, and then they project instructions for everyone to send this psychically to a dreaming psychic over the other side of the city. Stands in the sleep lab with a dreaming psychic, and whenever the psychic goes into a dream, it wakes him up and says, what's the dream? And then they looked at the correspondence between what the psychic said and the images, and Stans argued there's a lot of correspondence there. He thinks the crowd was psychically sending images to that man. What was actually happening? That could be chance, I don't know. But a very cool experiment. This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and we're talking about myths this week. Moving on to another myth, um, this one I love. Uh, do we only use 10% of our brains? Because if this is true, then, you know, you'd get amazing advantages over the rest of the human race if you could access the other 90%. Yes, it's a very attractive thought. The secret powers. The secret powers. What percentage of your brain do you think you use? Uh it's a very personal question. Um, <laughs> when you're playing tennis. Yeah. I think probably I'll just use different bits, right? If I'm playing tennis, I'll use a bit. The tennis the, bits. The tennis bits. Yes. My yes. hugely advanced tennis bits. Wouldn't it be great? Because, of, of course, the brain's got two hemispheres, left and right. Wouldn't it be great if you're playing tennis and you saw the activation move from one hemisphere? To... <laughs> Bing! Um, this goes back to William James. Who, he? So he is one of the founding fathers of modern experimental psychology. Very odd man, very very brilliant man. Principles of Psychology was his two-volume work on psychology. Brilliant, very good. And he's into all sorts of weird things. He's into consciousness and parapsychology and all sorts of things. But he goes along, 1906, to give a talk. So I've got what he said written down here. Uh, we are making use of only a small part of our possible mental and physical resources. Okay. Which that, is a very reasonable comment. That's That makes a lot of sense. Is this a case of that getting lost in translation? And then what happens is somebody goes, oh, yeah, William James said we're only using a small part of our resources, almost certainly true. Then at some point that comes about the brain, and at some point it gets attached with the 10% thing. So no one can track back that evolution, but it seems to be that's that's the, the, the beginnings of it, William James, very respected guy. And, and it's kind of weird. It's a kind of weird idea because if you take somebody and unfortunately uh, they experience some sort of damage to even a small part of the brain, a stroke or a physical injury, it has a huge effect on people sometimes. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can lose speech and so on, which is like the smallest of um, trauma. So the idea that you're only using 10% really doesn't sit with any of the, the trauma uh, work. Plus, brain scanning. We can now look at the activity in brains. And it's very misleading when you see 
those brain scans and you see a little area light up and you go, well, that's the area to do with facial perception or whatever it is. What you're looking at is a subtraction. So what they're doing is giving you a task that doesn't involve looking at a face, a task that involves looking at a face and then subtracting the activation away. In reality, nearly all tasks require all of the brain to be active because we wouldn't have evolved to only use 10% of our brains. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly work. wasteful when really you think about wasteful, it. Really wasteful. So actually, uh, when you're playing tennis, Wimbledon final, um, you're using pretty much all of your brain, as you are most of the time. When you answer telephone, type an email, anything, it's pretty much all of the brain. I mean, that's a lot of scientific evidence to say that that's wrong, but... There is that Scarlett Johansson film. Uh, yes. And the whole premise of it is that we only use 10% of our brains and she's some sort of special agent and they've sort of accessed the other 90%. Yes. That, so, that's on the other the side of both it. Sides. Both sides oh. have got something to it. <laughs> no, but what's odd is that people love the 10% idea, mm. but they're not quite so keen on the idea that they themselves can change, even though you're using 90%, 100% of their, their, their brain. So I, I just think, again, as a social psychologist, we, all, we shouldn't forget we do have that potential to change and, and improve, but it's not about unlocking the 90% of your brain. Nice idea, not true, except for that film. Except for that film. Yes, which could, actually now you've mentioned it, I'm beginning to wonder. Well, exactly. Um, what about drugs that uh, are supposed to enhance your cognitive abilities? Yeah, they don't though, do they? Have you spoken to anyone on drugs? No, I'm talking about the, the drugs that students, a lot of university students take nowadays. Mm. There's an essay that needs to be finished and they need to concentrate a lot longer. And Well, yeah, I mean, you can drink a cup of coffee and it's, it's going to have a stimulating effect. There's all sorts of things. Take a nap. In the afternoon, it's going to increase your focus. So there are things you can do. There are probably some drugs you can take, although some of that might be a placebo uh, as well. But it's not unlocking 90% of your potential. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? If, if kind of you're struggling to focus, and then suddenly it's 90% more. And you're like a sort of hawk uh, looking at uh, a mouse from 3,000 feet. It's not like that. Yes, we can improve ourselves a little bit. But I would probably argue, rather than taking drugs, um, you're better off doing all those behavioural things, which are probably going to have a bigger impact than, um, you know, putting, putting drugs into your system. Fair enough. Firing on to another question. We've got a question that was sent in from Liv about the power of positive thinking. And she says, I'm a big believer in the law of attraction and that if I think positively and consistently enough about something, then it will happen. Please tell me this is not a myth, as if it is, then I've wasted a lot of money on totally useless books about this topic. <laughs> so the, the idea of thinking positively is not a bad idea. The idea of endpoint visualisation is not great. But expecting good things to happen, being optimistic, as long as it uh, makes you more resilient and so on, absolutely does work. So it's not a, a massive waste of money. But it's a very simple idea, which is that if you expect good things in the future, it's not surprising that you put people around you that also expect those things and you keep going when the going gets tough. All those things which kind of underpin success. Okay. But it's it's not the case that you think of the thing and then it happens. There's not, in my opinion, any magical process involved in it. And certainly if you do what some books tell you to do, which is visualise the end point, you're actually undermining the, the chances of that happening. Okay, here's a question from Peter about subliminal advertising. 
I read an article about how brands pay to have really quick visuals of their product flashed up between frames of a TV show or film, so fast that the viewer isn't really aware of it. This does sound a bit far-fetched, and I can't vouch for the quality of the publication that the article was in, but does subliminal advertising actually work? And if so, should it be allowed? I, this gets us back uh, to the 1950s and to uh, James Vickery. Who he? Well, he's an interesting man. As a teenager, he's into snakes. Okay. From America, um, snake expert. And uh, then he gets into the idea of subliminal advertising. It's not quite clear where he got the idea from, but it is his idea. The mm. idea of flashing something briefly up. Are the snakes coming in again? Uh, no. Okay, good. Yeah, you're I not into relax. snakes. No, no. Not great. Right. When you say not great, you've got a phobia around No, them. no, 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 no. They're fine. Okay. Uh, there will be no more mentioned snakes. Thank you. <laughs> so his original idea is to flash up briefly images of snakes. <laughs> I said there's no more snakes. Um, his original vodka. idea is to... It's vodka. You've driven me to it. <laughs> is to go to a, uh, a movie theatre, uh, a cinema, as we'd refer to it, and he's doing this in America, and flash up, buy Coca-Cola and buy popcorn. And then you can see what the increase in sales will be. So it goes along. 47,000 people take part in this study because he's doing it several times during lots of films at a time when people used to go in large numbers to the cinema. And he uh, then puts out a press release that you get a 60% increase in popcorn sales and around about 20% increase in cola. Amazing. Goes all around the world. Incredible. That's, that is incredible. Amazing. But popcorn, not Coca-Cola. Okay, that's right. That's... Uh, one year later, the CIA all get very interested in this and they start to do lots of experiments into subliminal perception and you get subliminal self-help tapes that you can put on when you're sleeping that tell you to be more confident and so on. And then people look at this and go, hold on a second, 47,000 people in this cinema. That must have been a big old thing. So they track down the cinema owner who says, I know nothing about this. They tracked down James, who said, well, maybe we did it on a very small number of people, and then he had a small effect, and I might have exaggerated it, and it's possible I never actually did it at all. And it turns out he'd made up the whole story. So he's a marketing executive, and he thought that would be a good idea. The easy thing to do is just say I've done it rather than do it. I mean, that's that's often the way with science. You have the good idea yes. and then actually getting hold of 47,000 people. Turns out, yes. It's, it's an actual faff. It's, it's, it's a bit of so a faff. So you just skipped to the so, end. So he just skipped to the end bit. Uh, but in doing so, changed the world. Because it <laughs> had CIA as well. Uh, because everyone, oh my goodness, subliminal perception. That seems to work. And it got banned. The thing that didn't work, for which there's no evidence, <laughs> got banned. And so wow. even even today on television, you can't you can't flash something up very very briefly. It's it's illegal because you might be unconsciously influencing the audience, even though there's no evidence that it works. Is that true? Yeah, they've laws against it based on a study that didn't happen. That's correct. That's my understanding. That's astonishing. So. Uh, that's why I find these myths really interesting. Is first of all they carry on. People tell each other these things. It's a really good story, you know. He's sitting there, and uh, and and also I can it trades on our our fears. There's a great book called Hidden Persuaders, and this idea that the marketing folks are out there and they know exactly how to make us. But well, they do know how to make us buy stuff. But on the way to the cinema, you will have passed huge billboards with massive images of a product. That's the stuff that's persuading you, and no one's bothered by that. Instead, they're worried about this effect that probably doesn't even exist. 
So these myths kind of take on a life of their own. And they always come up when I give a talk. They're always, is it true about subliminal perception and so on? And uh, you have attempted to just say yes. Yeah, most of the time, actually. This I is mean... the only time I've ever spilled the beans. <laughs> Normally, I just go, yes, it's all true. I feel like we've we've got behind, we're inside the magic circle. Yes. And uh, you're just, you know, spreading the, the misinformation. Uh, absolutely. Because it's more entertaining, because that's what yes. we want to believe. They either trade on your fear with the, the subliminal perception, or they give you hope. Oh, if I could just imagine this, and I'm only using 10% of my brain and, and so on. So you really see, as an area of psychology called motivated reasoning, which is that people believe things not because of the evidence, it's because who knew? They want to believe them. It makes them happier. It makes them feel better. It makes them feel less anxious. And so I think the challenge for psychology is to come up with equally interesting findings that also happen to be true. That would be handy. Well, that got through another five questions. Five questions. Not many to go now. Technically loads to go, Richard, because we've got a thousand questions to get through. We cover dreams, we cover 10%, we cover positive thinking, Yale motivational studies, subliminal perception. I can't believe how much we're getting through. I'm visualising the end point. <laughs> Doesn't help. From Podimo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podimo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends. Leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us, and don't forget to subscribe. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.